Welcome to the Extra Podcast. This is episode number 290, and my name's Greg. I will be the host for today's podcast. Joining me around the table is Andy Steiger. Pleasure to be with you today, Greg. Matt Glezos. That's correct. Hello. Great did I say here. that right? That's right. You did. Glezos. Glezos. Os. Rolls off the tongue. Just like an os. And Jeff Bucknam. Yep. I'm here, Greg. I'm right here. Bucky Buck in the house. All right, everybody. First, first, uh, first thing we need to talk through is what is the deal with the snow? Mm. Well, Greg, we're recording on a Tuesday morning when it gets cold enough at the surface Mm. of the earth. Jeff, can you explain how snow works to me? Rain, which usually falls in the form of rain. Wait, I need to get a pen. Freezes. Okay. And uh, forms liquid, forms a solid Mm. and, and, and accumulates. Forms. Because the Solid. molecules. The this molecules is the most are... snow that we have ever had in this area, I think, ever. In the sh- shortest period of time. At least I saw that the I other day. I believe it did set a record. 1949, apparently, was something something kind of similar. That was a cold year. Which is interesting. That because, was cold. <clears throat> Remember that? Because if you think about it, people are all claiming this is evidence of global warming. Of course or it is. Climate change. Whereas climate in 1949, change. they had it similar. Now, I'm not suggesting climate change isn't a real thing. I'm just saying that. Did you just say climate change isn't a real thing? No, I don't believe that. Oh. I'm saying you don't believe s- in climate change. No, stop it. <laughs> stop it. I do believe in climate change. There's questions about how much human beings are the ones who are there causing it. Yes. Although I imagine there's probably more truth to that than not. I don't think all the scientists are trying to lie to us. But anyway, that's just my opinion. Wow. If that offended Hot you, take. That Hot offended take. You, that's that's fine. But I also don't. Not, I'm not a big Al Gore guy. Well, let me offend some people too while we're at it. Can I just say it's that El, it's La Nina? That's what I was going to say, though. It's La Nina, <laughs> isn't it El Nino? No, this is the opposite of it. When it's what? El Nino around here, we get it's, like it's a warm. warmer temperatures in the in the, the in in the in the. I can't work under these conditions. <laughs> this is what is happening? <laughs> it's the snow on the satellite. This the snow on the satellite. Did we're still uh, recording? Okay, it's, it's okay. working. It's still good. We're going to keep that in there, yeah. just so that you know that. That's partly partly what we're dealing with with Greg. Yeah. We're having technical difficulties this morning. We are. And El some, Nino is when it gets warmer during the winter and drier in the summer. Mm. And La Nina is when it's wetter and I don't know. Can I offend colder. people now? Can I ask a, wait, I, I need you, a follow-up question. Gosh. Why do the Spanish get to name these well, things? That's a good point. Also, why <laughs> are you so knowledgeable about weather? Are you a secret meteorologist? Why would you keep, and why would you keep that secret? Chief meteorologist. Ooh. By the way, isn't that's all done by computers now, isn't it? They're yeah. just computers. You get you basically pick out of like fifteen computer models, and you put it up on your little board, and you you, you show. I, I've never understood the chief meteorologist thing. I don't know. I think Mark Rodriguez brings a lot to the table. Who? He's the chief meteorologist for what CKW or Global? Global, Global I think. Oh, I only know the News Eleven Thirty guy, yeah. Russ Lacate. Oh yeah, Russ Lacate. He's, He's also legit. Yeah, I mean they both do a good job. I don't know why you're. And let let me also say that the weather that's reported by the Canadian government is far more accurate than the Weather Network. That makes the sense. The Weather Network is constantly <clears throat> saying it's going to be like three degrees or whatever, and it's like minus two. And the Canadian government's website's always environmental Canada, environment Canada is always saying they're always right. So here's a shout out mm. to, the to the government of Canada <laughs> that they, they at least they get their weather right. Right on. Wow. Proud to be Canadian. Andy, you've been wanting to say something for a while. You know what? Forget it, Greg. It's all right. Come I'm, on. I'm, no, I'm, no, I don't no, even want fine. to offend people now. 
You were going right, to offend people? All right, fine, if I have to. Uh, no, I just wanted to say that uh, I've had enough of the snow. I've had it. I don't want any more snow, and well, I don't appreciate the you, snow. I'm sure you just offended so many of our <laughs> listeners. Andy, There's a lot of snow lovers out there, as, and I just want to tell them all. As somebody who has access to the southern part, to south of the border, that you could move there like tomorrow and yes. have no trouble with it, mm. do you find yourself thinking that if – here's a hypothetical. If this happened every year for the next like four years, would you stay mm. in this area? It's a good question. And, knew, and you knew that it was going to be like this going forward. Would you stay in this area? Probably. It's tough. Um, listen, your wife doesn't listen to the no, podcast. Yeah, she's Just fine. Go ahead and say yeah, it. Don't worry no, about it. It's, it's, yeah. That's definitely up in the air because I have to say that the summers here woo you back. That's the problem. Mm. They bring you back and they encourage you and then and then they bring the winter again. And that's the problem with Canada. So you could put you could put up with this weather kind seasons. Of, no, you, Canada will seduce you in the summers, only to leave you mm, in the I, winters. I don't think anyone in Ontario has ever used the word "seduce" for their winter summers. <laughs> just the west, just the western, just the coast. Really. Just right by the ocean, actually. Right. That's like that's the only place that it's, that's where the weather seduction no, is going. Exactly, on. <laughs> Nova Scotia, PEI. What, what about you, Jeff? And here, Jeff, would you stay in this no. kind of weather? No, you have been looking wow. up like vacation spots. Yeah, that wasn't even a for a while. Like you want to go, um, you need I, to get out. Of I'm going to tell you that if for those of you out there who are longing for the day that I leave Northview Community Church, <laughs> the prayer you should pray is, "Oh God, bring the snow and have it snow like this in in like the next couple winters," because then that if, would be that. Then whatever call you're feeling to the isn't that horrible? Here would just freeze up. It's terrible. Listen, yeah, there. I'm like Paul. Jeff's call is weather dependent. Right. I'm like the Apostle Paul. There's there are people everywhere, brother. <laughs> right. <laughs> opportunities <laughs> abound. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Classic. Many hey, opportunities, but much trial. You know, I just wanted to take this moment to to switch gears, Greg. Yeah, and to those who don't like banter, you're not going to like these next few minutes either. Yeah, because I just want to take a moment to remind everyone that Tom Brady is the best quarterback of all time. Period. Okay, can I? Here's why that's just ridiculous to say. Um, no, first of all, he is the winningest in terms of Super Bowls, right? No one's won more than than he has. Five Super Bowl rings, mm-hmm. Gregory. That thus, although the greatest okay, of all time. Here's, here's my point: is that he was uh, rightfully a sixth round draft choice with his skill set, and he plays for Bel- Bill Belichick. Who's probably the best football mind ever? And if you look at their winning percentage, I haven't done the, the stats, but here's what I'm saying: If you probably look at their winning percentage with Brady and without Brady, I would be shocked if it was vastly different. Here's my point: Tom Brady, good quarterback, system quarterback. That's the you claim. Know what? That's garbage. That's the claim too, though, of Montana that without mm. the West Coast offense, he wouldn't have been as winning. Probably, probably the probably the case. Yeah. But but the quarterback's got to make the play, man. At the end of the day. You gotta throw the ball. So, someone has to throw the ball seven yards down the field okay, so that Deion Lewis can I, run with it. I gotta tell you though that that it is hard for me to think that Brady's better as a pure quarterback than yep. John Elway was. Yep. Not that I liked Elway, I hated him. He was I'm a C, I'm a Seahawks fan, right? And the mortal enemies were the Broncos. But Elway was was as as a pure quarterback who could do all the things and who carried the team. He was amazing. 
And I think that if he were playing in this particular day with all of the rules against the defense, I think that a lot of the uh, everyone would be looking at Elway and thinking that he is he is the best quarterback ever. Um, and if Belichick was coaching in 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 uh, Miami for Dan Marino, mm. Dan Marino would have won uh, probably six or seven Super Bowls. Can I add this though? That's garbage. I am from Boston. That's my that's my where I was born. Boston, my family, all extended family from New England. Okay. Have you not heard this before? No. This oh is news God. to me. I thought Here, you were born in Belgium. Here's the thing. The Patriots used to always be kind of my second team. I grew up with the Seahawks. The Patriots are always the second team. I was really excited when they won the first few. I, I, I will tell you this. They they are, and this comes from somebody who is I'm relatively um I mean I still have an a a, a like for the Patriots, for the fan base. Like, I have family who's into them, and I was I remember the days of cheering for them. Steve Grogan, back Steve in the day. Steve Grogan. Here's the thing that I that I need you to hear. The pa- Tom Brady and the Patriots are the luckiest team Whoa. in the history of the NFL. Hot take. Maybe, oh. maybe the Pittsburgh Steelers being in there, too. But I, when I say the luckiest team, they have been the beneficiaries of of colossal meltdowns mm. by their opponents. And you might say, well, that just shows how, how amazing they are. Well, actually, yes and no. You got to give them tenacity, though. I mean, the Super they, Bowl, they were they look like they're going to lose it hard. Yes, but then the only way that they came back was a series of events that Atlanta did to help them along. This is the way it works with all great comebacks. But they backed into the Super Bowl against the Seahawks. They really did. Had early in the game, the Seahawks were up by ten points. Jermaine Curse has a ball on the sidelines that he should have caught. The ball came went in and out of his hands. Had that happened, we would have been in field goal range, and we were like assaulting them. Uh, Cliff Averill gets injured in that game, and we're not the same in terms of our ability to rush the quarterback after that. They they just these things happen, right? And so so Atlanta doesn't run the ball. When it's obviously you're supposed to run the ball at a particular point in the game because one of their guys twists his ankle, one of their offensive linemen twists his ankle, they get called for a holding call in the same drive, and there's a face mask penalty at the same time. But the Patriots always seem to get the, that call, right? A defensive holding call on third down in six, like four successive third downs that they get stopped on. They get holding defensive holding calls so that they go down and they what kick the field goal earlier. I'm just saying, this it's just weird. It it really is weird. In the first Super Bowl that they won against against the uh, against the St. Louis Rams, the Rams were far and away the better team. the The only play that I can think about, I mean, in that Super Bowl, they they the Patriots held held in there, but the Rams there were lots of dropped catches and all sorts of weird things that happened, and then. Um, the one time that the Patriot fans continually talk about how they, you know, don't say that we're lucky because because David Tyree caught the ball on top of his head. But I have already read people talking about how great Julian Edelman is and how lucky how lucky Jermaine Curse was with to have the ball bounce around on his legs and stuff and be able to, you know what I'm saying? Pick up the ball. Anyway, oh, it was a lucky catch. And Tyree's was a lucky catch. But now Edelman's a star. Because he's just in the right place at the right time. I'm I'm just saying that if those other two were lucky, Edelman's was lucky. The Patriots are lucky. Wow, lucky. And by wow. lucky, you mean 
So it's blessed by the I, providence. I, totally. Of, uh, that's what I mean Lord. is that God seems to want them to win in the present time. Mm. And so if I were to For recap reason, the last two years, I want to point out though, that that whole time Andy looked mostly glazed over. I came back at the end though, Greg, <laughs> Yeah. to remember that last year it was deflate gate. And now this year it's luck, Jeffrey. Mm. Yeah. All right. This as long as we're clear. Well, they all, I mean, look, I, I'm not a big. I don't care whether they they took the air. They broke the rules, right? They took the air out of the footballs and all that, and they Supposedly. broke the rules by videotaping other teams and stuff. So I, all of that, whatever. I don't care. They're the, they are the best. There's no question they they are the best team of the last 15 years in the NFL. Yep. There's no question. They are all the also the beneficiaries. Tom Brady in particular is the beneficiary of some really weird things that have happened in big games that have benefited their team. They're not like the 49ers were back in the 80s and early 90s, where they would go to the Super Bowl and absolutely blitz the other team, just just destroy the other team. They they have won in last second fashion through weird circumstances. Providence, man. Providence. Yeah. It's like it's like the it's like the, the, the Red Sox had that long dry spell. And God was like, you know what? Hmm. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna overload you with joy. With joy. Um, I was making all those motions. Now I have to say it in the mic. I was gonna say, just go up a little closer to the mic. How about this? That's better. <laughs> that's good. That's good radio listening right there. Nothing like tips from the guy recording the episode as we're going. Okay, right. this is way too long. Greg, we got I questions. Have about it. <laughs> Thirteen minutes in, and we are going to get to our first question, and it might actually be our only question, depending on how long it takes. Because here's the thing, guys: two separate listeners made a comment about uh, the widow's might, which was brought up in was it a podcast topic or was it a sermon illustration or when when was the re- refresh me of when the I made reference to it. As part of when I was talking about uh, Luke, uh, the story of Zacchaeus, I was trying to give some uh, clarity about how Luke talks about, in the, especially the end of the gospel, he gives some examples of people who uh, are, are honored for their, for their sacrificial giving. So Zacchaeus is one of them. The mm-hmm. widow's might in Luke 21 is an example of that. Yeah. Okay. So we had two separate listeners send in questions about that point, saying that they question whether this story in Luke 21 is actually meant to be a commendation of the widow. So here's, here's the, the comment from the listener, uh, from one of the listeners. We had two separate ones make this point. Here's, uh, I'm going to read one of the person's questions. It says, I've appreciated the recent Bling Bling sermon series and resulting podcast discussions. One item I wonder about, however, was your discussion in last week's podcast with reference to the poor widow in Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. From my read and study of the passage, Jesus does not appear to commend the widow for giving away everything she had to live on. I think it's possible that Jesus is just illustrating his point by way of observation at the temple in light of his teaching on false teachers in the preceding verses in Luke 20, verses 45 through 47. These false teachers of the law were taking advantage of widows in particular. Isn't it possible she wasn't being generous, but she was doing what she believed was necessary because of the influence of these false teachers who prey on people, especially the poor. Uh, And then another listener wrote in and said, I've listened to John MacArthur's sermon on this widow who gave her last two mites, and he gives strong support for her giving to a false religious system and that Jesus wasn't actually commending her. So 
Verses 45 through 47 of Luke 20 say, While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts in the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow putting in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people have given, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So Johnny Mac says, this is not an example to follow because who she was giving the money to. One of our other listeners said that this reads to them more like an illustration of the false teachers devouring widows' houses. What say you? Uh, I can see the argument uh, being made. I can see the contextual argument in the near context that they're saying here that she is an, she is merely an example of somebody who is putting money in uh, into it, uh, and sorry, into the treasury. Um, I have a hard time seeing uh, her not being a foil, though, hmm. for the for the false teachers. If you understand what I mean by a foil, I mean that sh- her her actions are deliberately by Jesus being uh, shown to be the opposite of those very teachers of the law. And I'll add to that the wider context of Luke when he's dealing with money. This is a constant discussion throughout the entire his entire uh, gospel. How people use money has a lot about their spiritual state. Uh, he is very, very commending of the poor and very uh, condemning of the rich. So this this text actually fits in the in that wider framework qu- quite nicely. Okay, so. I'll also appeal here to the history of interpretation on this passage, that John MacArthur's viewpoint on this passage is is not one that is represented well in the history of the interpretation of the text. So could he be right? Sure, sure, maybe, but you have to explain to me why it is that Jesus' words seem to be presenting her as a foil to to the false teachers, which if he's condemning them, then he is, by the nature of a foil, commending her and her actions. You'll have to explain to me why this doesn't fit within the wider framework of of the context of Luke as a whole. And you'll have to explain to me why it is that so many commentators for so many years, almost to a commentator, have gotten this one wrong. Um, So I I can see the new viewpoint, but and and in some ways, yes, I, I totally appreciate the contextual reading of it. I think that's appropriate. He is trying to compare the teachers of the law. And condemning them. In fact, the the next um, passage about the destruction of the temple is largely based based upon his his um, judgment on the religious leaders of the day. But I'm not persuaded by John MacArthur's viewpoint for the reasons I just gave. Don't you think as well that MacArthur's point would be secondary to the passage in that she is giving to a corrupt religious system, and and but he's also just compared. With regards to the uh, teachers of the law, the way in which uh, they are presenting themselves and the kind of money that they have, 
And now here you've got this widow who's giving out of what little she has. She's she's sacrificially giving, mm-hmm. uh, but you have a religious system that she's sa- sacrificially giving to that is that is a, a corrupt religious system at the same time. So in some ways you have both of these taking place simultaneously. Yeah, I don't think Jesus is endorsing the religious system by, by any means here. There's no, there's no statement being made to affirm that. The, 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 the religious system is not in his view. What, I, I don't, well, when I say the religious system, the religious leaders who have driven a religious system that has basically made it so that they are devouring widows' houses and making these kind of um, out, outward signs of religiosity, which is exactly what the widow's offering is, is doing. He's pointing out that uh, all the others gave their gifts out of their wealth. This is that's what the religious leaders do. But this right. woman who is is being held up as somebody who is faithfully responding, right? And I I I am not suggesting that there might, there's not a hint of uh, sadness being placed upon her. Do you understand what I mean? Like like as you look at this woman, you're thinking to yourself, she she absolutely is being duped by these folks. But again, I've struggled to see how she's not a foil for those religious leaders. Yep. And as the, the nature of a foil in scripture is that you, you present one character, you know, he, he's, he's trying to highlight in the, in the near context, he's trying to highlight the wickedness of the religious leaders, right? And how they do things for a show and they're rich and they do, right? And the way that you highlight that is putting opposite them a noble, poor person who's acting with more nobility, even though they have way less than these religious leaders are acting, even though they have way more. So the, so the function of the foil is the, is the words of contrast and comparison. Right. Right. And so you see that in the, in the emphasis, which does seem to be the emphasis of, of the text. It's, it's on Mm -hmm. the comparison. They gave this, but she, all the more, all of that speaks to what you're saying. Do you give much, uh, weight to this idea that I've read from commentators that would say, you know that in the in the Jewish system there were different offering boxes that you could give money to, and if you gave a certain amount of money, it would go to certain things such as uh, uh, sacrifice, like, like a sacrifice or something like that. And then there's there was just a general offering if it was below a certain amount, and so the amount that she would have been given to the temple treasury would have just been too low to have been to anything significant. It would have just gone into the general. Uh, treasury. Do you, do you give any stock to that? I'm just saying. I think I think that the text lack, lacks specificity over those matters, and so maybe, but it'd just be conjectural, right? I mean, we're just kind of like poking in the dark a little bit when it comes to that sort of stuff. I mean, what 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 is she offering? What where? I mean, where is she doing this? How is the offering functioning? Is it the different box or the, like? I don't know. What the the force of the passage is is the the context is these religious leaders are are wicked and they're just you know they're rejecting God and his ways okay they're not faithful uh in fact they're so not faithful that uh let me show you the opposite of this this widow who i think again i think i just i'm struggling to find see how this is not just a a standard foil so at the heart of the <clears throat> argument against what you were saying, Jeff, is that there's no explicit commendation of the widow in this text. Well, and so, okay, but, but so what, how would you respond to you that? You use language like explicit, and I'm saying that this text is a narrative. And I'm saying that you, the way you give commendation in narrative is not the same as the way you give commendation in a pass, in, in a, in an epistle. 
right? An epistle, you actually say it out like he was a good, he's a good guy. In this, in in, its, in a story like this, you hold up the nobility of one character by contrasting him with the other. Hmm. The, the, I mean, this I can show you foils all over the Bible. Hmm. Uh, people whose actions are being held up as being noble and righteous, even though it's just describing what they did, but they're being described opposite of somebody who's wicked to tro- to exaggerate the wickedness of the person who's acting wickedly, or the wicked person is brought up to exaggerate the goodness of the person who's acting goodly. It's not a word, hmm. but do you understand? Mm-hmm. I mean, Matt's a Matt's an English guy over here, I and I, so I'm I'm That's assuming right. that he's goodly. Is, he's nodding. Is yes no, word. but you're nodding. I think because the concept of a foil in literature yeah. is common. Yeah, it's one of the ways that it's just a way of making your point. I, yeah, I agree. I think that sort of plain interpretation, if you want to call it plain, is makes more sense. But I, I do think though it brings up. I mean, this this question brings up maybe the the bigger question, not that the text raises, but you know, what would you say to someone who says, um, you know, I, I want to, I have a heart to tithe, but in my particular church, I'm not, I'm not confident in the way they're dealing with finances or I'm not, you know, I don't feel so mm. I, I tithe the giving where, to a corrupt system idea. Right. So yeah. I, I tithe where I want to, you know, and sometimes I just give directly to people because that that's, I think is more, you know, authentic and more what God means is, uh, how does that sit? Maybe the bigger question is, you, you know, in our tithe, who are we giving to? Are we giving to the, the church uh, leadership or are we giving back to the Lord? Hmm. Uh, I think this raises that because it's sort of. Yeah, I think so, raised. too. It's not the chief text that I would go to to try to say you should be giving money to the local church. OK, right. I, I don't think that's the point that Luke mm-hmm. is trying to make no. here. I think he's trying to. I, I, again, at the end of Luke's gospel, he starts bringing up some people who are generous. Mm hmm. And and they're good. They're the good guys. The good guys are right. generous. generous. The ones who are not are greedy and only give money for show. Um, and part of the generosity is is the tithe, right? Is the it, or is the giving to the temple? So in this case, right. giving to a temple system that is largely corrupt. Uh, I mean, like I would prefer to go to a passage again that Luke wrote in in Acts, where uh, where you get a story f- at the end of Acts four. You get a story about Barnabas. Um, so. Acts 4.32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it, notice where they put it, at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need, presumably anyone within the community that had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who was the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. A couple things here. First, notice, I just want you to notice, this is just a description of what happened. Right. Okay? This isn't prescriptive. So, so I could use the same argument that, that, that what, I, what I've been told MacArthur uses here to say, well, this is just a description. So it's not commending Joseph, who was called Barnabas, but you know that he is being commended by the way he's being talked about here. Mm-hmm. All right. And there's in this case, there's no foil even. So, so I, again, it's just the way literature works. But secondly, notice that these that he goes and he sells the property, gives it to the apostles feet. But he, and he says to distribute for anyone as they have as they have need. Now, who's going to make the decision about where this money goes? And the answer to that question is the apostles are. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The ones who are in leadership over this particular body of people at this time, those that, that that apostolic authority has been passed on to elders of local churches, at least at this level. And so on the one hand, yes, you should, you know, you, you should beware and discerning regarding whether or not you give money to who you give money to, of course. But you should also recognize that the leadership of, of your local church is going to answer to God for what they how they choose to do that to do that. And, and they've been called by God to show, to have that discernment and have that responsibility. You've been called by God to be generous and primarily be generous with God's church. Mm-hmm. None of, no one who's listening to me right now has all the information that the, that leaders of local churches have when they make decisions about who should get what and, and, and whatever in terms of like missions and other things like that. I'm, I'm just telling you that. I'm saying that as somebody who's experienced that, being somebody who's been kind of on the outside and had significant questions. And then when I went on the inside and heard the debates that are being had, I'm like, oh, that's a good point. Oh, that's a good point. Oh, dear. I didn't know that about so-and-so and why it is that he's not supported at that level and this other person is. So at some point you have to trust the leaders of yeah. your local church, right? And not assume cynically that they're just wicked, awful, and way worse than you would be in discerning whether or not what should go where. And, and don't you think primarily in your heart, it's an issue of, it's an issue of honor and worship to God. I mean, isn't that, is, that's the theology behind the tithe. Lord, you've given me everything. And the first portion, the first bit, I'm honoring you. So it's a, it's an aspect of worship where you're saying not, you know, I'm going to govern exactly where this goes, but Lord, I, I want to honor you with this. This is part of my heart's desire. And I want to see, you know, whatever ministry that I feel a part of. And I think that's, that's maybe where I wonder if some of that, uh, some of those misgivings have more to do with a sense of uh, people feeling more comfortable distancing themselves or rather than being all in and, and committed to the local church. They they want to kind of stay at a distance and maybe contribute when, when they see fit. There's sort of that sense of I'll be in when I feel like I want to be in. But as soon as there's a decision, I'm not totally sure, but I'm going to draw. I'm not, I'm not sure, but it should be about you and the Lord, right? Lord, I love you. Thankful for all you've done. Whatever, every couple of weeks I'm I'm giving, I'm tithing because of because of you, not so much. Right. And I think that's part of the th- thing that she's being commended for the widow, the widow. I mean, if you agree with me that she's being commended and I hope you do that, the thing she's being commended for is her, is her generosity and being willing to give sacrificially. Uh, so then you, which would... is different than what the, the, than what the others, the other guys hoard, the other guys are hoarding. And whenever they give, they give her show. And so here she is quietly giving this little bit, but she's, she's giving in a sacrificial manner. Even though the temple is, is like it is, even though it's 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 not. Again, those people in the temple are going to have to respond to God. That right. the people who run the temple, and that's in fact the the context of that passage is basically they're the ones who are going to have to are going to be judged by God for what they've done, and they are judged in the following text when the temple is is promised to be destroyed. So they ha- they're they're responsible for how they spend the money and how they they treat people, but she's responsible as well for how she how she gives how she respond how she acts toward god it's like you said it's it's an act of worship on her part mm-hmm. at least that's the way i understand that passage to be laying it out mm. macarthur i don't know did you want to ask a question or no <laughs> you're good no no i was just that jeff jeff pretty much answered that that just clearly laying that out the distinction that's being made between uh, the religious leader and 
the widow. You know, I do think that it is a challenge for us, though. I mean, it, it, admittedly, not, none of us likes to give our tax dollars to the government, right? Because we don't like how the government spends it half the time. Where's my snowplow? It's mm-hmm. interesting, though, that we still do it, though, right? Because we think to ourselves, well, I mean, threat of law, they're going to put me in jail and all this sort of stuff. But when it comes to the church, you, the church, so your brothers in Christ, who are elders of your local church, uh, who have been discerned for that role, spiritually so, are in charge and being held accountable for God for how it is that they sh- steward that money. And you're far, you're far less willing to give to them than you are to take a stand against the secular authority that has no doesn't value what you value at all. I'll, quite honestly, the taxes that you pay to the Canadian government are being used to abort children. The taxes that you and I pay to the Canadian government are being used to uh, to oppress, in some cases, people's religious freedom. So I, I'm I just I find it interesting how how much we don't think about the the government because in our minds we think the government has an authority that the church doesn't have. And I think biblically, you're going to have a hard time demonstrating that. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going mm-hmm. to say that actually, biblically, the authority of the local church is far greater mm-hmm. than the civil authorities around us. Not that the civil authorities should be honored. They should be honored. But the local church actually has an authority that they don't even mm-hmm. have. So someone listening to that, if they came away thinking, okay, well, then why, if those kinds of terrible things are happening with our tax dollars, then why shouldn't we just stop paying our taxes? <laughs> totally. Yeah, well, because Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar was not a nice man. Yeah. Um, he, he wasn't a good guy. Nero wasn't a good guy. Uh, all, you can list off the, Cira, the, the Caesars that, that existed during the life and times of Jesus and the New Testament, and none of them are, are like noble people that you want to pat on the back and say, now, this is a really good use of your money. So the government has a right to receive its financial do from you. We can debate about how much that is and how it should be received, but so does the church. But also back to the government idea, we have a league, we have legal routes, you know, that you can go through to, you know, change or to amend what you think isn't, you know, why spending of right. taxpayer and dollars. Likewise, you can do the same. I think in the local church, Absolutely, you can send emails, you can talk and meet with people. You actually probably have more opportunity to influence your local church leadership Become a member. Then you do your government. Yeah. Go to an AGM. Yeah. Vote. Right. Like in a church like ours, for example, our our budget documents are open for everybody to see. You can see nearly everything that we spend our, our money on. There are obviously some things that we don't explain in as much detail as others. And by that, I mean salaries, because that's not everybody's business, right? Any more than your salary is everybody's business. But at... At the same time, there are teams of people who make these decisions, and even if you wanted to question how much Greg got paid, you, you could actually go and talk to them about that. They're not going to reveal those that information to you, but they're going to give you their justification for how they come about the salaries, how it is that mm-hmm. they determine the, the right amount, uh, how we do uh, research on that on that matter, and we do. And um, I, th- I think that's actually worth noting, Jeff, that a lot of people don't realize that Northview takes a look at what the pastors in Canada, in our conference, are paid. And not just in our conference, but like, like um, uh, common-sized churches, uh, what churches in Canada get paid. We have constant conf- uh, conversations with many different churches across the country. We try to 
regulate that by cost of living here, stuff stuff like that. There's a whole bunch of factors that go into that, and there's a team again. There's a personnel. Uh, there's a personnel committee that that oversees. All, would, all of that. Would stewardship committee be involved in that too, yep. or is that mostly personnel? Yeah, but again, like I said, that our we we're different than a lot. So when you and you read online or hear about churches that have closed, you know, they don't share their their budget documents. Like we're not that church. Uh, in fact, we have a budget. It's funny. We have a budget open house every year uh, that meets in a very small room, not because we don't want to have it in a larger room, but because nobody comes. It's mandatory for the interns. <clears throat> right. It is. So there's eight. So there's, it, yeah, and they come and they sit there. And if you want to come and, and have an entire the entire budget before you, and you could ask any question you want about the budget and challenge it, the budget's not final at that point. It's actually going to the, to the congregation and others for approval. So you can change it and ask critical questions a few times every once in a while someone will come along and say yeah, I just don't think that that's either an I think we should spend more on that or I think we should be spending less on that or people will do that so you have the freedom to make those 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 comments what you don't have the freedom to do though is to not give so I, that might sound really harsh but I'm, I'm saying to in a local church you, like you you don't and so my fear is when someone writes that question, and this is me attributing motive, which is probably not there. It's probably just, look, we're trying to understand the scriptures in the context, and that's awesome. Mm. But my fear is that every once in a while, people will write a question like that and say, see, we don't actually need to give to a local church, or we don't need to give to organizations that we don't exactly depend, you know, we don't exactly endorse everything they do. So we should be able to target our giving. Well, I believe in the children's ministry of Northview, so I'm going to give to that. And I believe in Matt Glezos. Mm, that's so I'm going to give to him. That's, that's a big one. We're going to have a link. <laughs> right? Yeah. Anyway. No, it comes down to trust. Do you trust the, the leadership of your local church? I don't. Well, <laughs> that's probably not good. <laughs> it probably should be. <laughs> Probably should deal with you that. Know, you guys are part of some of the conversations around here too, though. You guys are in in pastors' meetings and stuff, and it's not. Un, I mean, for me anyway, it's not uncommon for us to do audits on our own ministries and stuff, and be like, you know what? Yeah, that's not. I, we think we're spending too much money on that. It's not. It's not a good use of finance. Mm-hmm. Well, like I, I feel like I'm in a, that conversation like three times a week. That was one thing when I started. Uh, working nonprofit that challenged me because when you're a pastor, you don't really see who's giving. But when you start working with, say, for Youth for Christ, Nancy, my wife, worked for Youth Mm -hmm. for Christ for a while, where, you know, you have people donating to you. You know exactly who's giving to you and exactly how much they're giving to you. And I remember we had this little old lady that would that would support us. And uh, that was some of the toughest uh, money that we would receive is twenty five dollars a month. Uh, because it challenged you in how you were spending God's yeah, totally. money, mm-hmm. right? And that you were making, you know, everything you're doing, you were really thinking to yourself, okay, do I need to do that? Is that a wise use of God's uh, stewarding of God's resources? It's mm-hmm. a, it's. So I have a question. I have a question that's along those lines for all you guys. So here's a challenge that that churches face and that others face frequently. Like Andy, you you oversee Apologetics Canada. Uh, do you? Like how how do you think we ought to treat different levels of givers hmm. in the church? Because I I have had people say to me before, you should be spending time with some big donors. Now I on the one hand, just so you know, like I recoil at that. Uh, but at the same time, 
some there is some justification to say that. Look, uh, these people who have been blessed by God with this money and they need a special kind of discipleship uh, that will help help them to use that money in an appropriate way. And so that kind of discipleship needs to be offered them by the church in, in, in a special way that you're not going to offer to somebody, somebody else. Now, I'm not suggesting that I agree with that rationale, but what do you think? Andy, you're involved in the nonprofit. Matt, you've been involved in an executive yeah. pastoring kind of roles before. Greg, you just so... I'm happy to hear. <laughs> Here's the thing that's made my heart bleed over the years, Jeff, and it gets me fired up about this topic. Anyone who's worked nonprofit, anyone who's had to raise support, they know that 99% of the funds that they receive are not from wealthy people. They're from average Joe. And that it's, it's average Joe that's giving. Would you be concerned if it was 99% was from the well, some wealth, a few wealthy people? I guess because things are so unproportionate right now, it gets frustrated. I'd love to see the day that we see uh, wealth that I, you know, I've just not seen it, Jeff. I haven't seen wealthy donors. We haven't, I haven't encountered it. I'm not saying that they're not out there. Well, you need to dress better. I mm. guess so. You know, and maybe that's because I'm not wooing those people or, or whatnot. Uh, but but when I've talked with other missionaries, when I've talked with other people, this is what I've heard by and large, that for the most part, uh, that that's not happening. I think that's why we preach on passages like this, and we and it can be so frustrating. Uh, I don't know. Am I making sense? Yeah. But I, I, I know I'm giving it really one-sided here. Well, I would, I would say my experience has been different. And maybe to answer the question, I don't think that a different kind of discipleship is needed. The discipleship is, is the same regardless of, of income, meaning, you know, we're, we're helping people to understand better who they are in Christ and then respond accordingly. But I do think the opportunities for giving might be different. So in my context uh, from Westside, Westside acquired a building in downtown Vancouver. The only way that happened was because there were a few very wealthy donors and in their own discipleship, they had got to a point where they recognized that they were conduits of, of grace, of financial. And so they had been given the ability to build businesses, to acquire wealth, and they saw it rightly as a means to grow God's kingdom. And so when the leadership at, at Westside, not even not even asking, but making them aware of certain needs that we had at that point at Westside, we were in temporary, we were renting theaters, and it was getting tough to just meet on a Sunday with all the different things that would happen and try to move around. And when that need was presented, the response was, well, what about, what about this theater downtown? And the West Side leadership had never, well, we never thought of that. That's like millions of, and they're like, no, no, but, but I've got some guys and, and we're going to, so I, I guess I would say that is different in the sense that, yeah, you're going to talk to those guys more. You're going to go have meetings. You're going to make your needs known, not in the sense of, I need to, you know, have a special amount of time for you in that sort of sense, but just in the sense, here's an opportunity. I know God's blessed you. I, I know or hope your your heart is to use what God has given you, just like everyone. But this is a this is a big ticket item, and um, we see God's blessed you in a big way. And so, the danger, mm -hmm. I think, is that the people who give and have that finance now sense that they have more control, a greater mm -hmm. ear. Um, yeah, that that sort of thing. One of right. my experiences, anyway, around uh, the Fraser Valley since I've been here, and it's not just here, is that 
there there are oftentimes a lot of people who have a lot of money who uh, either inherited it, were the beneficiary of God's providence. I mean, everybody's got money. It's a beneficiary of God's providence, right, right, in those particular circumstances. So it's not always due to their wisdom and discernment. Oftentimes it's the right place, right time. But they tend to be be the leaders in churches and in parachurch ministries. And I sometimes I struggle a little bit with that because uh, there are some very discerning, very godly people who are who are not um, the beneficiaries of God's providence in that regard. And as a result, they're not given a voice like the other ones are given. And so that I, th- just, I just think there's a da- there's an inherent danger in visiting people like that, not treating everybody the same. The other danger, I think, is that you don't actually talk about money very much because you don't offend the guy who's got a whole lot. So the mm-hmm. guy who's driving to your church who's got a particular, you know, he's accumulating lots and lots of things, right? He's got five houses and these sorts of things. You don't want to say, brother, uh, how much is enough? Mm-hmm. Be- because you're afraid that he's going to pull the plug. And just so you know, every time I've ever preached on this, somebody somebody who's wealthy will end up saying, uh, I'm out because you don't, you don't understand that my money is actually mine. And, and so there's a, honestly, I think that's probably one of the reasons why people don't talk about this subject that much. And maybe that's just overly cynical of me, but, but that discipleship of that person is no different than anyone else struggling with, uh, right. The opportunity is there to push, which is what we're called to sort of, uh, it's not a different thing. It's just the issue is, is different. Okay, I agree with you that the issue is different, though. But you, you might. It, so if you have a, a church, though, or you have a particular person who's involved in uh, a, a, a kind of line of work that has certain challenges to it, to their discipleship, right? So, you know, the, the, their particular line of work, maybe, I'm sorry, I don't want to, like lawyering, I don't know, to stereotypical lawyer that you're taught to lie and cheat and whatever. Not that that's what lawyers are taught to do. I'm just saying that that's Say yeah. say that that's the situation. Y- your discipleship and your mentoring of that person is going to look a little different than it is going to be from somebody who's not in that kind of realm mm. where they're tempted to do that kind of thing. So likewise, somebody who has a lot of money is going to be at risk for a lot, certain kinds of dangers. And I've named one here, haughtiness, right? Greg, you preached about it this week. Mm. So y- there's a danger in money that you're going to think really highly of yourself. So, so you need to put some things in place to try to limit that. You, you need to uh, have certain kinds of actions where you're going to be led away from that kind of that temptation. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. And so I, <clears throat> I, I don't want to reject pastors and others who uh, have special relationships with people who have money if their relationships are leading toward that kind of discipleship. My fear is... That it's not always the case. That actually they have friendships and relationship with those people, not for their discipleship, but for what the pastor and the church can gain out of them. Yeah. And I, do you see what I'm saying? It should be flipped. Mm. It's what that person should be gained from the the pastor's helping that person, not that person helping the pastor. Well, that mm. that example in Acts, the next passage is is an issue where God takes uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Like they brought they brought some money. I don't know how much. So it was probably a good chunk of money, but. The issue was the heart. The issue was that they lied about it. And so the hearts of the leaders there was not, oh, look at the, this money. It was, it was you, you as the people. And so mm. if that's our attitude as, um, as leaders or as elders, then, then whatever comes, Ari, whether it's someone who's got wealth or not, like the issue is always what's, 
um, Lord, what do I, ha- what do you have for this person? You've put me here in this relationship. How can I help this brother or sister in Christ to grow? And it may be challenging them. And if there's a fear that, oh, they're going to pull away their money, then there's, there's a bigger leadership issue there, I think. Right. Greg, you only hang out with rich people, right? Yeah, man. <laughs> the thing that always goes through my mind. This is wisdom. Is the challenge of wanting to condemn people and wanting to take my focus off of myself and my giving and uh, place it onto other people mm-hmm. and think about what are you doing with your mm-hmm. money and how should you spend yours? Right. And, and every time I start to do that and every time I get frustrated, you know, because, uh, you know, with, with fundraising, uh, God's always constantly me, bringing me back to myself going, you know, Andy, but what about you and how are you giving and challenging me in the way that I'm spending God's resources? So it, it's this constant tension, isn't it? Yes. It is for people who own big hot tubs, yes. <laughs> it's always. Oh, man, the haughtiness that comes with a hot tub. See? It's even right in the name. It's uh, right in the, you know San Andy? I own a hot tub. So we, we, are, uh, I love my hot tub. we are done our bling bling <laughs> series. And uh, in timing, that can only be God's providence. Uh, if you're interested, you can pick up your tax receipt in the foyer. Now we didn't announce that this weekend because I thought that's going to be a bit of an awkward yeah. transition after the end of our series. By the way, your tax receipts are available. Exactly. Uh, but they are. So just so you know, if you are interested, you can pick that up in the foyer. And next week. And we'll leave the subject of money alone for a while. That's right. And, okay. And next week. Unless the passages actually talk about them. What are we, what are we looking at our next sermon series, Jeff? It's called Modern Family here at the Abbotsford campus and the Mission campus. It's, uh, it's going to be about uh, all different sorts of issues regarding our relationships. So uh, what, it's like, you know, how, what does the Bible say about being a child to parents? What does it say about being parents to children? What does it say about being a husband to a wife and your marriage? And what does, what, what does the scripture say about divorce and remarriage and these sorts? So, so I, there are contentious pieces to it, but also yeah. some, some not contentious pieces to it. What the scriptures have to say about you know, parents to their children, everyone will nod at. What the scriptures have to say about marriage and divorce. Uh, our viewpoint at Northview is standard evangelical view, but there are a lot of people who don't know what the standard evangelical view is. And so they get a little bit uptight and frustrated about it. I will say, just like we do with money, uh, our goal is to look to the scriptures, God's very words, to define for us what's true, good, and beautiful. Mm. And so we don't walk away from the Bible and say, well, that's stupid, because in doing so, we're saying God is stupid. And that is an arrogant presumption. Mm. And so our goal in all this is to, is to rightly understand these passages in their context and to uh, deal with what they have to say to us about our parenting, our friendships. How, that's one of the sermons we'll do on, on friendship. All, stu- all sorts of things like that. So we are, uh, we're excited to start that sermon series. And we hope to see you guys who are listening uh, at our Abbotsford or Mission Campus in the coming weeks. So if you have questions you want the podcast team to answer, please email extra at northview.org. And until then, stay safe in the snow and we'll see you at church on the weekend. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe.